I know you're wanting to listen to this episode of the Comics Alternative, but before we get started, let me just remind you guys that it's the gift-giving season. Now, that may be obvious, but one of the things that's not so obvious is that you can get all of your stuff and help out the podcast by going to comicsalternative.com slash Amazon. Click through on our Amazon banner that you find on that page, and whatever you get during that visit to Amazon, the Comics Alternative will get a few cents kickback. So, whether it be Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, or Festivus, get your gifts through our Amazon Associate link. It's a smart way to get your books, and you'll be helping out the podcast. And isn't that what the holiday season is all about? Helping our podcast. This is the Comics Alternative Eurocomics. Reviews of Piero and The First Man. Bonjour, and welcome to another episode of the Comics Alternative Eurocomics. I'm Derek. And I'm Pascal. And we are two guys with advanced degrees talking about comics in translations. That's right. And on this episode of the Eurocomics series, Pascal and I are going to discuss two recent works in translation, both originally published in French. We're going to begin with Edmond Baudouin's Piero which comes out through New York Review Comics. And then after that, we're going to look at Jacques Ferrandez's adaptation of Albert Camus' The First Man, and that's published by Pegasus Books. But before we get to that discussion, we want to let all of you know that this episode of the Comics Alternative Eurocomics is brought to you by the great folks at Discount Comic Book Service. Go to their website, dcbservice.com, for all of your comics pre-ordering needs. There, you're going to find all Marvel, DC, Image, and Dark Horse titles at 40% off the cover price if you pre-order. For all of the other publishers, you'll find that those discounts can be anywhere from 20 to 35% off of the cover price. And every single month, you're going to find some incredible specials. Sometimes those specials could be as much as 45% off of the cover price. Sometimes 50% off cover. But occasionally, you can find discounts that are even more impressive than that. Yes, and if you look this month under New York Review Comics, you will find a solicitation for Letters to Survivors, a graphic novel by a famed French uh, artist called Gébé, um, who is one of the founders of Charlie Hebdo. Um, he's a very controversial figure in France, but a very interesting, interesting uh, artist. So this is a, um, a translation from a 1981 graphic novel he did which is contemporary of Dying Laughing, if you remember our mm -hmm. review of that book. Oh, yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, and they're actually in the same genre. And then uh, as far as Pegasus is concerned, this month we have a solicitation for Bebop Barbarians, a hardcover graphic novel by Gary Phillips and Dale Berry. And uh, this is a, a book focusing on uh, the U.S. Uh, in the... In the 50s and the civil rights movements, it looks very interesting. So two uh, very interesting books coming out from Pegasus and New York Review Comics on DCBS. That's right. And great discounts. Exactly. 
<laughs> you have so many great discounts at Discount Comic Book Service, and not just comics in translation, but English language ones, of course, as well. So go to DCBService.com. They will take care of all of your comics pre-ordering needs. And after you do get your texts there, please be sure to send them an email and tell them that Pascal and Derek sent you. Exactly. Pascal, officially, this is our November Eurocomics mm-hmm. episode. Late November. <laughs> it's Yeah, very late November. It's late November into early December, and I know that both of us had a lot going on. And in fact, you had kind of a, I guess it was a somewhat surprise or quick trip down to Colombia in South America. That is correct. So I, I was there uh, <clears throat> meeting and working with uh, other colleagues teacher english teachers giving them trainings so uh yeah it was it took some time but it was fun and now i'm back and actually checked out the comics uh scene over there and they have quite a bit going on so it was exciting that's cool now i i know that at at one point i thought that we were going to get the november show in in november but you were out of town and Mm -hmm. so we just thought we'd wait till you got back and so this is november but we will be back, and we hope on time in December, with a December Eurocomic show. So you can look at it this way. You get two shows from us for the Eurocomic series in the month of December. The November one and the official December. Exactly. Let's begin with the first text that we're going to look at, and this is Piero by Edmond Baudouin, and this one came out from New York Review Comics in very early November, and it is translated and with an introduction by comics creator Matt Madden, who does some really good books. Uh, I don't know if yes. you, or, or you're familiar with Matt's work, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so it, it's interesting that he's the translator of this, and I think he writes a really good introduction. Now, I have mm-hmm. to say, I've never read any of Baudouin's books before, and I think that the only English-language translation of his stuff uh, is actually that Salvador Dali book for the Artmaster series of Self-Made Heroes. Is that correct? And that came out, uh, I guess, a couple of years ago. Yes, and that was not really a representative of his work, I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this is a major uh, author out of France that has been active for <clears throat> a while. First book published in 81. Um, and actually the book we're discussing today is 20 years old. It's, it was published in 1988. Um, and I'm very happy to see his major work you know, appearing in English. Because there was definitely a gap in, uh, you know, voice books not being published in the U.S. at all, or very little, um, because of the importance that he, you know, he has in the, especially in the alternative indie scene in France, uh, because he was really a trailblazer and uh, inspired uh, l'association and all the guys that reshaped. Um, the comic book landscape, you know, Sfar, Louis Trondheim, and all those guys mm-hmm. really, you know, really influenced by him. You know, this reminds me, it's, this is not unlike what we experienced or what we were talking about on the last Eurocomic show, you know, where we looked at Setouf's 
first three yes. volumes in English mm-hmm. of The Arab of the Future. And you were making the point that this is a major French comics artist, but mm-hmm. it's not in t- – and he's, he's published quite a number of things in addition yes. to The Arab of the Future – but only now, or relatively recently, in the past couple of years or so, oh, we're getting him in translation, and it's a long mm-hmm. time in coming. So you're saying that it's the same uh, situation with Baudin. Uh, yeah, Baudin is actually Baudouin. it's even uh, more uh, impressive because he's he's published now. I was looking through his his uh, bibliography. We're talking about seventy graphic novels. Wow. I mean. Jeez. It's a lot of material that remains to be translated. Um, compare, Satouf compared to him is a beginner. <laughs> well, well, why do you think it's taken so long to get his work in English? I mean, that, I'm not counting the, the Dali pro, book from Self Made yes. Hero, but you know, this being his first work, and you say he had, what, 70, 70 some books in mm-hmm. French? Why is it taking so long, you think, for him to be translated? I think because he was such. Um, like I said, a trailblazer, in, even in France, they didn't really know where to put him because, you know, in the 80s, he was publishing in a format similar to this in, in black and white, and it didn't fit the... It's only until Association got got that format more popular that his books got, you know, released widely and he got more acclaim. Mm-hmm. And I think in the US, some of the... Maybe is. Uh, visual style is is very unusual and maybe it's it needs a lot of uh, I think contextualization to get the thing out and I think this is a good place to start Pierrot is a good place to start and the introduction helps a lot kind of understand what this book where this book belongs in his in his works and the other aspect of it and I, that's one thing that Matt Madden, Matt Madden does very well is there is a poetry to his writing that maybe is a little challenging to translate. Um, it's not, yeah, the, the way he writes is, is quite unusual for, for uh, I think, graphic novel writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a challenge to really capture that. Another I think this thing, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Well, I say another thing that Madden points out in his introduction is that uh Baudin is kind of situated between two generations because on the yes. one hand he has been associated with older writers for instance like Tardy that mm-hmm. are his contemporaries at yes. the same time he eventually became associated as you've mentioned with l'association and mm-hmm. you know a younger more experimental generation mm-hmm. of writers so Whereas I would think on the one hand that benefits him. On the other hand, it kind of puts him in kind of an in-between place, which may not necessarily work to his benefit, depending, you know, because people don't know how to to peg him, so to speak. And whether we want to or not, we probably unconsciously try to group creators into certain yes. schools or certain generations. Again, whether mm-hmm. that's useful or not is another matter. It's up for debate. Uh, but if he is kind of this in-between figure in terms of generational styles and um, sensibilities, then people may not know what to do with him. Let's say as opposed to Marjane Satrapi, right? Or, Correct. Or Johan Spar, or, or, or Jacques Tardy, for that matter. 
Yes, and I think what, one other major thing that is uh, that I think a reader needs to know is that when he published his first book in '81, he was uh, an accountant, and I forgot he he was not a young man. He started publishing in his 30s, and I think that also creates kind of a divide with um, even the the artists of this generation. Um, you know, people like Tardy and, and uh, of, like Lustal, people like this, who were who started as young men, and you know, just launched their careers. And so, and same thing for Satrapi. There's like a youthfulness about what she did early on. You know, she was uh, much younger than he was when he started. So he came up with all when he came on the scene. He was this older guy, and everybody was. This is odd. Why? You know, this is very unusual. I think for um, somebody to kind of have a second a second life, basically. And now he's in his seventies, uh, and he's still publishing books. Um, so it's quite quite an unusual career. And I, like you say, he's kind of a most like a, a, a lone ranger <laughs> uh, in between generations. But when he was adopted by the association, was more like as a as a father figure, you know, because he was probably 20, 25 years older than anybody at L'Association at the time. So that makes him special. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we, we've talked about uh, the creator. Let, let's talk about the text, uh, yes. Piero itself. Mm-hmm. Now, this is – would you call this a memoir? Uh, I, I Yes, I would. It, it – I, I, that makes sense to me, and, and the reason I asked about that, and I'm a little hesitant to just come right out and say, yeah, this is a memoir, it, it's a different kind of recollection. Uh, and in yes. many ways, mm-hmm. I think it has quite a bit in common with The First Man, and mm-hmm. we can discuss that when we get to The First Man in the second half of the show. Uh, both of the books remind me of Marcel Proust Yes, in that – now, remembrances of things past. What, mm-hmm. What's the what's the French title? Uh, Le temps. Oh, à la recherche du temps perdu. Yeah. Okay. And that's it. We're going to have a big discussion about this title. Should we do it now? Because <laughs> it's one of the things I want to bring up for the next book. But um, okay, do you think it's more appropriate to bring it up with Piero or with First Man? I think they both apply, but it's it's directly uh, in the First Man. The book is mentioned directly. Right. Right, <clears throat> but it's it's a translation uh, issue that I had because I just realized you the English uh, translation English titles changed in the nineties, which is very odd to me. But so apparently the book is now in search of lost time. I, no yeah, longer, I think so. Yeah, and no longer remembrance of things past, which was I thought that was the title. Yeah, which is what uh, it was called in translation for for the longest time. Yes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so the focus on uh, yeah the small memories from the childhood from from childhood right that inform um, the life of of the uh, the author today. Um, so something very um, sometimes tactile or or very small in his relationship with his brother Piero. Um, definitely has kind of a Proustian feel, mm-hmm. and the non kind of non-linear 
non almost non narrative sometimes exactly um, and that's why i spectrum. somewhat hesitated coming right out and saying that this is a graphic memoir because mm-hmm. even though it is in many ways at the same time the way that it's structured and as you put it the kind of nonlinear way mm-hmm. that it brings up the past especially as it may inform what's going on with the current uh mamon you know the edmund mm-hmm. figure yeah uh and, and you know we find the exact same thing in the first man as well which we'll discuss when we get to in a little while but uh, mm-hmm. It is a different kind of work or memoir, again, if we want to call it that. So, you know, when we have something like uh, Epileptic or uh, Persepolis, mm-hmm. I think those are more outright memoirs, autobiographical kind of works in that there is a story where one event or one scene or one remembrance, if you want to look at it that way, kind of links directly with what comes next. And then with what comes next, so on and so forth. Here, it's a little different. Now, I mean, I'm not suggesting that in Piero there's no interconnectedness among the various memories that Edmond or Maman comes comes or brings to the fore throughout the narrative. Mm-hmm. But it is much more free flowing, and you can find one scene that may have or one remembrance that has with his brother uh, Piero whose real name is Pierre, that has nothing to do with what preceded it or with anything that comes after. They're just these Mm -hmm. moments of reflection or recollection of his time with his brother, especially as it related to drawing, because art, drawing, and drawing together especially is a major part of Piero. Definitely. And I would add, um, there is, I think... This is, if we say it's a memoir, it's almost a memoir about memory and, uh, and the way memory is organized. And, um, I, and it's, to me, there's a, it's maybe more s- similar in a way to works of, the, uh, work on the memory that like Chris Ware or, or Seth were, are doing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. I, I I feel that connection there. Even though their art style is extremely different, but the approach I think it's it's closer to that than a straight up uh, graphic memoir like you know Satrapi. That's or even Satouf actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I want to come back to something that I brought up just a moment ago, and that is mm-hmm. the emphasis on art because I think yes. that's you know that is a major part of this book. And mm-hmm. I think that these moments that Maman or Edmond is mm-hmm. remembering with his brother Piero, mm-hmm. and and we should mention, and we find this out in the last part of the book, that as they get older and go off to school, that that uh, their family sends Piero off to art school. Mm-hmm. Whereas Edmond yeah. or Maman doesn't. In fact, he becomes what an accountant like his father. He goes to, to school to to learn accountancy. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know he eventually became an artist because we're holding the book in our hand. Uh, but uh, so and Pierre Pierre did not. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. In fact, he it, it, toward the end of the book, he just says that he's frustrated. He just wants to to quit, give up art. Yeah. He's, yeah. Exactly. He says art school is only about talk and money. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, yeah, and I think it's a, the, the book is clearly 
position those those two kids in a family that it's not a poor family but it's maybe you know lower middle class they may they don't have access to a lot of things so their number one occupation is the cheapest kind of thing you can do is draw right mm-hmm. um and that really drives their lives um through school but yeah the reason only one of them goes to art school is is basically they cannot afford sending both and and i think the fact that the brother who goes to art school rejects it um this is really Edmond Baudouin making a point about you know um the trajectory or your your life story how do you become an artist has really nothing to do with what school you attend mm-hmm. it's a personal journey and he's one example of that definitely And we do get quite a bit of speculation on art, or if not speculation, then just a series of questioning about mm-hmm. what you know what is art, or uh, I guess Maman is the narrative. Of course, this is his um, his own story, his remembrances is telling us that he was trying to make sense of some of the pictures and illustrations that mm-hmm. he was looking at when he was younger. And then there's one passage. In the book, and this is on page 84 that really stood out to me. And this is not the first time that he mentions, let's say, the dots of a photograph, because at one yes. point he recalls looking at a photograph in a newspaper. And mm-hmm. if you pull back far enough from it, it looks cohesive, right? But if yes. you lean in and look very closely at the image, especially if you take a magnifying glass, he says, and you Mm -hmm. look at the photograph or the image in the newspaper, then it becomes much less realistic and cohesive and more like a series of dots, Mm -hmm. you know, of of various densities. But anyway, on page 84, uh, he's, this comes right after a recollection of him being in school and the kids wanting him to do illustrations for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on 84, he says, as with the dots in photographs, always the same questions. At what points do line, at what point do lines, marks, scratches stop being grass, rocks, a tree, branches? And why, if you try too hard, do you end up killing the sense of life? And, and there's something quite deep about that passage. I mean, I think that yes. there's something deep throughout the entire book, but I th- mm-hmm. that page in particular really stood out to me because he's trying he and his brother to a large degree individually and together are trying to use their art their illustrations their drawings to make sense of what's around them to make sense of their own relationship uh to to grow closer together and that's uh uh, Baudin's or Maman, the, the narrator's way of trying to understand the world around him. And so when he asks, you know, at what point do, you know, lines, marks, and scratches stop being grass, rocks, and trees, and branches, you know, again, it all depends on how you look at it, right? Because if you look too close, if you look too hard, as he says, then what had seemed to be grass, rocks, trees, and branches are no more or nothing more than points, dots, lines, scratches. And so I guess it has to deal with perspective as well. 
Yeah, and it's quite amazing that without any kind of art training, he was thinking um, about <clears throat> what it means to draw a line on a piece of paper and say it represents something or not uh, at a young age. There's another part that I felt very powerful, was very powerful, is when he um, says that his, his brother um, likes to draw the lines and contours of things, whereas he's focusing now on um, the, the mass of blacks or um, those, those scratches, more abstract things that when you bring them together, it forms a picture, mm -hmm. just like the offset printing. And he's changing his way of looking at things and his way of his approach when he's drawing, basically. Because um, drawing the, the line... The line work, which is kind of the base of uh, uh, comic book art, right? Mm -hmm. um, and he goes beyond that, and he's looking at textures. And um, there's a, a page where we see uh, a street with cars that's rendered that way, where it's blotches uh, that form a car instead of lines. So he's already thinking... Um, in ways and looking at the world in in a different way through through his art, mm. which is a very kind of interesting um, <clears throat> process, I thought for for especially a, you know a very young, um, very young, well, it's a young boy, young adult, I guess. And the two perspectives of the brothers, like I, there's one question I wanted to ask you about the book. The book is called Pierrot, right? Mm -hmm. Do you feel that the book is about Pierrot or about Edmond? Oh, I think it's definitely about Edmond, um, right. but it's it's Edmond within the context of his brother Pietro. So, I mean, without Pietro, I think we wouldn't get the kind of view of Edmond or Momon as as we have. In other words, he appears clearer in contrast or in association with his brother than he would just by himself, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, there there was something interesting when I uh, I was reading the book. I don't know if you had the same experience, but especially in the early part of the book, we have those two kids who are very close in age, and the way they are represented is not it's not very clearly they are not very clearly differentiated, and they have the same kind of activities. They they have this very symbiotic relationship. Yeah, they do who's who together in the illustrations? Yes, and yeah. I never knew we, who was who. I never knew who was Edmond, who was Piero at the beginning. And at the beginning, I was trying to figure it out. So is this who is this Piero? Is this Edmond? And then after a while, I, I thought it doesn't really matter. I, you know, it's I, I, need, I just let myself, you know, um, be taken by those little moments. And and then slowly in the story, they they kind of I, I felt they take on a different path, not only because of the school, but uh, because of the different ways they draw, and uh, they may not have exactly the same interests. Uh, there's also the health issue that Pierrot ha has that kind of keeps him from doing physical activities, uh, whereas Edmond uh, can run around more easily. Um, also, their, their interest in girls, is, I, I think, is a little different. It seems that Pierrot was more into girls than Edmond at some point. Yeah, an interesting choice to to make it a little 
almost like it's the same person at the beginning and then it becomes two. I don't know if you had this experience as well. No, I did. And in fact, I my uh, experience reading Piero is similar to yours in that at first I was trying to figure out, okay, in terms of these illustrations, which mm-hmm. one is the narrator Edmond and which one is his younger brother Piero? And mm-hmm. I couldn't figure it out, and I was going back to look through certain clues. So, for instance, you know, does one have a mole that the other one doesn't? No. Does one have a different hairstyle that, that the other one doesn't? Mm-hmm. Not really. Uh, is there an occasion, let's say especially in the first two-thirds of the book, where one of the illustrated figures addresses the other – and not just in, so to speak, voiceover, you know, remembrance, but when one says, you know, hey, Piero, let's do such mm-hmm. and such. And so I could get a grasp on who, at least momentarily, Piero was. And I really couldn't find that. But no. like you, mm-hmm. I kind of gave up after a while because I thought, you know, one of the major points, at least in the first two thirds of the book, or the first half especially, is the fact that these two brothers are inseparable and in that yes. their life together basically is what's defining the narrative. And, mm-hmm. and that really that really struck me, and I think that's one of the reasons why we don't have a clear distinction, uh, visual distinction, between the two brothers, because they are inseparable. And this is interesting. The, the, another passage that really stood out to me, I think kind of underscores this, and this is on page 39. And for... I guess up until this point, one of the things that uh, Baudin has uh, done is he's emphasized the two of them together over and over again. Uh, They go outside. They wander in the woods together. They sit down and they draw together. He even mentions a few pages before 39 about how, you know, as you mentioned, they're lower middle class. They don't have much money. They share a bed. So they mm-hmm. share a bed together, and not only that, it seems the way that Edmond uh, describes it, they even dream together uh, mm-hmm. because we have, I think, the first of what is – I think two scenes, if I'm not mistaken, on page 35, 36, and 37 where the two of them are flying because they're in bed mm-hmm. together, and it's almost like they're dreaming together, and they're flying over the earth. They're holding hands and making observations and having a good time. But then on page 39, okay, they, uh, Edmond recalls one of the things that they used to do is to go to a place in the village and play with the local clay that they called red dirt. And this was clay that really didn't have any rocks in it, so it was like you know pure clay that they could make figures out of. And yes. uh, Edmond says on page 39 – we would use the red dirt to make tanks, guns, cows, sheep, and little men. Then we would destroy them. But then it's this last panel at the bottom of the page that really mm-hmm. got me. He says, inevitably, we would finish up by making a sheet, a blanket, two pillows, <laughs> a, a, a bolster, a bed, and two children. We didn't destroy this last creation. We would leave it behind to dry up in some nook. And we drew every day. And it's the two of them in bed together that we had just seen a few pages previously. So again, mm-hmm. that really underscores the, uh, the the fact that these two, you know, are inseparable. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't, yeah. And the fact they don't destroy this figure, it becomes almost like, a, yeah, it's almost a, a little 
figurine that is part of a ritual that they would have. Mm-hmm. Like they self-represent and hide it somewhere. It's like their secret or something like that. But yeah, it's a powerful detail about their relationship. And I was thinking about uh, another moment in the book where um, there is it almost like they become aware that they are they are two different uh, people. I felt or that their identities are independent and that's page 93 where um they are older they're teenagers and um a girl asks uh edmond you are pierre's brothers right and he says whose brother (laughs) oh yeah pierre and then she says can you ask him to draw you know for a drawing and then the next panel we see they're actually um it's a long shot. They're very far away on the horizon, the two brothers talking. And then Edmond says, I, today I found out your name is Pierre. And uh, Pierre says, what about you? Are you Momon or Edmond? <laughs> and he says, yeah, but Momon is lame and Pierre is nice. Says, Stop it, Momon. isn't lame. Anyway, I could never call you anything else. But then there's this panel where they are together. And then there's a panel where you see only Pierre, I believe. He, and and it says it was it was the age of the age of the mopeds and there is a big thing about having a moped and riding moped around but they only have one moped for two um, but I, I felt that at this moment there's kind of a a first step in you know we're kind of taking slightly different path and we we kind of abandon our not really ab- completely abandoned but there's a change in their the way they are named and the way people relate to them as two different, two different uh, young men, I guess. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of an interesting, uh, it's an interesting pass- passage after the one you just described, where they were like so close, and then there is this moment where the names shift. So very interesting. Yeah, and you know, speaking of the last part of this book, there's something I don't want to say sad. But Mm -hmm. rather muted or somber the way Mm -hmm. that this narrative or this recollection or series of recollections ends because, you know, as as we mentioned, Piero, who had gone on to art school and seemed to be in many ways kind of a point of hope for Mm -hmm. his older brother, Maman, decides to quit art school. And and then uh, Edmond or Maman says, if Piero was quitting, and this is, begins on page 121, who was <laughs> going to keep dreaming? Maybe Piero meant it to happen this way. Maybe he wanted to pass something along to me, like a relay. My brother's ears are a little pointy, like a Martian's, and there's a scene from their, their Martian fantasy that we see at the beginning of the book. When <laughs> I ask him now, he tells me that, no, he's not a Martian, just an interior designer. That's his job. As for me, I quit being an accountant so I could draw, so I could dream, so I could keep mm-hmm. being a child, maybe just so I could make this book, which becomes mm-hmm. you know, self-referential at the end. So whether – I guess on the one hand, as I had mentioned, there's something kind of somber in that Piero gives up art. Yes. On the other hand, there's something kind of hopeful because as Edmond describes it, it's like the baton has been passed from Piero Correct. to Edmond. Yeah, and I, yeah, there is some. Yeah, it's it's maybe bittersweet in a way, but I think, like you said, there is hope because 
even though Edmond became an accountant, at some point in his life, he, like you say, took the baton from his brother and actually embraced uh, the artistic life and became a prominent artist. There is one thing in this passage you just talked about that I wanted to go back to is the Martian scene, mm -hmm. the, the Martian, right? Initially in their game, so they pretend uh, a, a Martian is coming down to Earth and they, they go talk to him. And I love that little detail where they, they are rushing because they, they imagine seeing the, the spacecraft um, crashing and they, they rush towards it. But they say, let's first get our sketchbooks, <laughs> which was kind of interesting. So they can represent what they see in their mind. But after the encounter with the Martian who, who is trying to, to get uh, fuel for his spacecraft and the fuel turns, to be, turns out to be dreams and the kid was there with the Martian, I f and I forgot we, if it's Pierrot and Edmond, that's one of my problems, <laughs> I don't know exactly, um, gives him dreams so he can fly away in his spacecraft. But before he leaves, he shoots um, the child in the head with his special ray gun that wipes out memory. Mm -hmm. And we see that scene again in one page, on page 122. Um and I was wondering about the meaning of this in terms of uh, if he's saying that the Martian is Pierrot, right? He's saying that he's got my brother's ears are a little pointy like a Martian. Mm -hmm. um, somebody between the two has lost something, lost the the will to be an artist, and uh, you know, he's giving up. Um, but for a part of his life, Edmond forgot to be an artist as well, right? Right. Until something happened, and he, and we don't have that part of the story as an adult where he decided to actually become an artist. But I think it was interesting that he brought this, this he, he actually redrew that scene with the ray gun, like something was lost at this point, you know? Mm -hmm. It's kind of the, their game, their childhood game was actually a meaningful metaphor for what was happening. So I thought that was, was an interesting touch. I don't know how you looked at this part but yeah no no I, I i read the the martian scene the early martian scene uh in similar ways to you <laughs> yeah it's a, and i think that's part of uh, kind of the poetry and the subtlety of the work is uh bringing meaning to child play in, in a very important kind of making childhood is the center of what makes a person and it's very interesting that one of the quotes that is um, listed, and I think it's in the introduction of the first man. That's not a segue, but kind of. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, I think it's, uh, if I can remember, it says, it's it's actually in the intro. Oh, in uh, Madden's intro. Yes, or the scholar. There's a right. It's a Camus scholar. There's there are two. No, it's actually in the intro to the first man. I'm sorry. But I felt it was meaningful for the other book. It's like those books are talking to each other in a way. Uh, I mean, that, you know, that is interesting because I, I, I didn't plan it this way. I don't know if you had something in mind that I didn't know about, but no, <laughs> we had, we had, we've been wanting to discuss Piero for a while, and then mm -hmm. we got a copy of the graphic adaptation of Camus' The First Man, and thought, oh, well, let's let's discuss that as well. Uh, and I didn't know how they paired 
until I actually read both of them and I thought, oh my God, I mean, there's a lot of similarity between the two. Yes, and I found a quote. Okay. So it's, the, ch- the child is the father of the man. Oh, uh, Wordsworth. Yes. So it's mentioned in, in, uh, in the first man book, which applies very well to it. And I thought, this also works for, for, um, for Pierrot, right? Mm-hmm. So that was my segue. <laughs> okay. Well, since you provided the segue and the connective tissue or some of the connective tissue between Pietro and the first man, let's go ahead and start talking about the first man. Sounds good. Yeah. So this is based on or an adaptation of the very – I guess we could call it the very last publication of Albert Camus. And as the um, – well, I can't remember who does the introduction to this book. I mean there's a translator's note, but then uh, the the person who writes the introduction, what's her name? Or Alice name? Kaplan? Yes. Uh, one of the things she mentions is a little history about this. Now, mm-hmm. when uh, Camus died, he was with – he was with his publisher, Gallimard, yes. and there was a car accident, lost control of the car, uh, smacked into a tree, and Camus was killed instantly, not Gallimard. I think he died later in the hospital. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that Albert Camus had with him was a manuscript that he was working on that he was calling The First Man. So he wanted this to be – his masterpiece. In fact, he envisioned it being something like Proust's Remembrances of Things Past, uh, or, or his War and Peace. War and Peace. Yeah, yeah is, is but another a ma- way. Massive to put work. It. Yes, a massive work. Yes. Uh, so something like a War and Peace, maybe even a like a Moby Dick, if you want to throw that in there. Uh, <laughs> you know, never never shy away from referencing Melville. Uh, mm-hmm. Is my philosophy, but uh, <laughs> but it was incomplete, and so. One of the things that I think his family had considered doing and his publisher had considered doing is to come out with the unfinished manuscript not too long after his death. But there was something kind of gauche about that. Um, so it wasn't until – when was it? The 1980s? 90s? I can't remember. It's the 90s. I think 1994. That the, it's the, pretty late. The yeah. daughter mm-hmm. uh, gathered everything, uh, had – the manuscript cleaned up because apparently Camus was uh, not the neatest of writers when it came to drafts. Uh, <laughs> so, she, but she was able to come up with as best as she could the incomplete or unfinished work of Camus, the First Man. And I remember when this came out. So, yeah, you're right; it is the '90s. I think I was in grad school at the time, uh, mm-hmm. and I intended to read it because I was a big fan of Camus. In fact, I was uh, when I was in a liberal studies program at UNC Greensboro. I didn't finish my thesis because I was in grad school in the, in the master's program in English at Purdue. Uh, mm-hmm. Primarily, is the reason I didn't have the time, and then ran out of time. But I was going to do my thesis on the philosophical disagreements of Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre, and so mm. I, you know, I, I I was much more of a Camus guy than I was a Sartre man, and so I, I was immersed in Camus, and I even, with the help of someone, even translated some of his essays that hadn't been translated yet. But I 
I'd intended to read The First Man when it came out in the 90s, but I never got around to it. Now, have you read Camus' The First Man, the incomplete uh, masterpiece, so to speak? Mm -hmm. No, no. I haven't either, and uh, I I wish I had before I read this, but I don't think it's necessary. It's not like you need to have read the prose version of The First Man before you read this. Now, this is uh, this is translated by Ryan Bloom, but the visual translation, so to speak, is by Jacques Ferrandez. Is that how you pronounce his name? Ferrandez. Mm-hmm. So you do pronounce the Z at the end? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, this is kind of a southern okay. name, so when we get to the south of France, uh, the pronunciation is closer to Spanish. Okay. It's actually probably a Spanish name, okay. Ferrandez or something. Ferrandez, okay, Ferrandez. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's not Fernandez, it's Ferrandez, which Fernandez. Yeah, is a little confusing. A lot of people call him Fernandez by mistake, because that's yeah. a more common last name. But yeah. uh, This and, came uh, out in early October from Pegasus Books, and mm-hmm. one of the things that's notable about this is that this is the second Ferrandez book Adapting a Camus narrative that has come out mm-hmm. from Pegasus Books. Now, in 2016, uh, Fernandez published or came out with an adaptation of The Stranger. And in fact, mm-hmm. on the July 13th episode of the Comics Alternative, so a little over two years ago, Gene and I discussed this book, The Stranger, mm-hmm. which is really good. And I find it interesting that after The Stranger – the text that Ferrandez chose to adapt is The First Man. Mm-hmm. I would have thought that it would be La Peste or The Plague. Um, yeah, or La Chute or something, yes. Or The Fall. Yeah, well, La Chute or The Fall. I mean, I would love to see an adaptation of that. But here's the problem with La Chute, is that La Chute or The Fall is narrated – in some ways, almost in the second person, but not quite. Yes. Mm-hmm. It, it's a first-person narration, and the speaker is addressing an unknown, unacknowledged, or at least unnamed um, listener. Mm-hmm. And so part of the I, – I, I guess the project of La Chute – is that oh god and I can't remember who the narrator is who, who what his name is but he is in many ways kind of confessing to his listener yes some issues or things that had gone on in the past the most significant of which is his hesitancy of helping someone that he almost knew was going to throw herself off the bridge and probably commit suicide mm-hmm. at night as he's passing her and He doesn't do anything about it, and he's haunted by that moment for the rest of his life. And so that's one of the things that he's guilty of, and that's considered in many ways his fall. That's the title. But he tries to talk to his listener, and they're at a bar, I believe it is, in Mm -hmm. such a way that he tries to get his listener implicated through the act of listening. It's a fascinating text. and. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons, the way that it's narrated to an unnamed uh, listener that in many ways becomes you, the reader, right? Uh, Because you Mm -hmm. as a reader can almost become implicated in the narrator's, so to speak, crime, uh, the way that it's written. I don't know how successful that could be adapted into comics form. 
Maybe it can, but I think it would be much more of a challenge. So it makes more sense that Ferrandez would adapt the first man before La Chute. Uh, but the, but the, but the plague, I think, or La Peste, mm-hmm. is a much more straightforward, it is probably Camus' most straightforward narrative of mm-hmm. all that he'd written. Uh, maybe with the exception of some of the short stories. Yeah, and I, I don't know, I, we mentioned this before, uh, when we were discussing, um, the David B. book, um, uh, Asib and the Queen of the Serpents. Mm-hmm. Uh, those two books, actually those three books, The Stranger, The First Man, and the uh, David Bay book, are part of the same collection in France. In the, it's a Gallimard uh, collection. Uh, and the purpose of the collection is to adapt uh, literary works. So they, also, they actually have a Huck Finn, uh, they have uh, Little Prince, a lot of uh, French uh, literature as well. Um, and the audience is probably younger readers, maybe not like very young, but maybe teenage to uh, to like uh, yeah, high school to early university, maybe. That, there's also a great Gatsby, actually. Hmm. Uh, so... I don't know to which extent, like, <clears throat> I don't know exactly if Ferrandez, uh approach, you know, those, are, because if it's part of a collection, they probably have restrictions on what part of the catalog they <laughs> they can let you adapt. I don't know exactly what the decisions are there. But, um, yeah, it's almost alpha and omega of, of the Camus work in a way. And he's doing. Yeah, starting and, with the first, The Stranger, and then the very last, The First Man. Mm-hmm. And I think also the the connection to, I mean, La Peste is also extremely connected to Algeria, but this book is also very connected to Algeria, and, uh, and, and uh, Ferrandez being uh, also uh, personally connected to Algeria helps, I think, his portrayal. Uh, like the the lights and and the the setting is is spot on it it feels you know it feels like the place i i think mm-hmm. um and i was thinking it seems that we have uh, a weird theme in our euro comics thing i mean it's not weird but it's just coincidence but it's like the third book about um french the franco algerian uh you know, difficult uh, history, hmm. uh, right? We've that. had Yellow Negroes. I had a, something about that. And then uh, it's not uh, America is beautiful, right? Right. No, yeah. Algeria is, is beautiful like America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now this one. So it's it's kind of interesting. Actually, you were saying like the in 50, uh, when they they would have released this book, The First Man, not long after Camus' death, but it was the early 60s was right during the the uh, apex of, of the Algerian conflict. Mm-hmm. And it would have been very difficult to publish that book at that time because Camus was ahead of his time in, in the way of thinking about this conflict. I, I think the French people uh, were not ready for what he, the way he approaches uh, what it is to be French colonial, pli- pied noir, you know, the Blackfeet, um, 
I don't think they were ready for that at the time. It was too, they were right in the middle of the conflict. So it would have been tough. Yeah. Well, you know, I hope we see more Camus translations or adaptations uh, from Ferrandez in the That'd be years, great, yes. Yeah, in the years to come. And, and not just, let's say, the fall or uh, the plague. Uh, I think it'd be great if we had the stories that make up Exile in the Kingdom collected mm-hmm. in uh in or in, in or adapted into graphic form that'd be good especially you know famous stories from exile in the kingdom like the guest i think that's probably the most famous and most cited stories in that collection don't know if you could do a graphic adaptation of the myth of sisyphus though <laughs> <laughs> or why you would want to uh or the rebel for that matter but those those are famous long essays but uh, well, you know, let, let's talk about the first man now. You know, as I said, it's based on Camus' Le Premier Homme, or the mm-hmm. first man. Uh, the translator of this work is Ryan Bloom, and he even has a short introduction where he explains mm-hmm. some of the, the decisions that he makes when translating this work, especially it being incomplete. And even though it's, I guess, officially a work of fiction. It's similar to Piero in a variety of ways, as, as we've pointed out, but it's similar to Piero in that its protagonist, the first man's protagonist, Jacques Comori, is that how you pronounce the last name? Mm-hmm. Comari? Yes. Yeah. Comari. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is in many ways kind of just a stand in for Camus himself. Yes. Because the mother being from Algeria, uh, mm-hmm. being close to the mother, uh, his uh, association with the Paris literary world, his love of the sun, the ocean. You know, there's something very poetic in Camus' writing about Algeria when mm-hmm. he's on the beach, when he's in the ocean, when he's in the sun. I mean, those are the most touching moments in, mm-hmm. I think, all of Camus' writing. And that comes through in Ferrandez's The First Man as well. Definitely. So, yeah, so Comori is a stand-in for Camus himself. But this is a work of fiction, not a memoir, although it does kind of approach memoirdom, I guess we could say. Yeah. Yes, I, I believe so as well. And yeah, Komoi being a, also being a, a writer. And oh yeah, um, and uh, the book is divided into thirteen different chapters in, in a varying lengths, right? Mm-hmm. Because we have some chapters like, <clears throat> let's say, Thursdays and vacations that are either you know, medium size or longer. And then we have other chapters like the third Paris that are only just a few pages, uh, mm-hmm. but it basically, or Jessica, yeah. Or, or, or Jessica. Yeah. And it takes us through Comrie's life more or less chronologically, although there are flashbacks, you know? So in terms of what happens in the narrative outside of flashbacks, there's really not much jumping around. I mean, the very first chapter is called birth and this is uh, Jacques Comrie's birth. As mm-hmm. you might guess, and then when by the time we get to let's say the penultimate chapter, the attack Sadek, this is when the Algerian conflict, uh, the war with um, with with uh, France, is you know I guess at its height, mm-hmm. uh, or at least about at its height. But then when we get to the last chapter, which is very prosaic. In fact, there are sections of this graphic adaptation of the first man that are very wordy 
And you yes. and I were talking mm-hmm. off mic about how, you know, both of us were a little surprised at how dense this book was because you pick mm-hmm. it up and, okay, it's album sized, right? Yes. Um, really nice. And just flipping through it, I didn't get a sense that this would take me a long time to read through it. But it mm-hmm. ended up taking me a lot longer than I anticipated because there are sections, and I think this last chapter, Unknown to Himself, is probably the best example of that, where mm-hmm. the book becomes – and I don't want to say wordy because that has a negative connotation, but it becomes much more prosy. In other words, there's mm-hmm. a lot of text and a lot of remembrances that – where it seems to me the in these sections, the art takes a backseat to the text. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, think I would th- agree with that. Yeah, and I think throughout most of this adaptation of The First Man, the art is at least on the same level, if not even primary to the text. But there are certain sections every now and again where the text comes to the fore, and you really need to attend to that, and it can get rather dense. Uh, mm-hmm. And not only in terms of, you know, problems with tra- – or not just – not necessarily with problems of translation. I think that Bloom seemed to do a really good job. It's just that, you know, Camus was a very philosophical writer. Yeah. Uh, you know, in many ways – you know, I, I think people can read if, – if, if okay, let me say this. If they only read The Stranger, then I don't think they get all of Camus, right? Because Camus no. <laughs> intentionally wrote The Stranger – in a way that was very similar to Hemingway, very sparingly in terms of language, very straightforward, mm-hmm. short sentences. I mean, look how it begins. Mamon died today. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's the first sentence, the famous first sentence of The Stranger. Um, and so it was written in a way that reflected Hemingway, who was one of Camus' heroes. But in his later works, he becomes much denser. He becomes much more philosophical. And obviously, we can see this in the essays, you know, like the myth of Sisyphus and the rebel and others, uh, but even in his fiction. And so I think if you go on to read things like The Plague or The Fall or even even some of the short stories, I think, to some degree, then there is kind of a density of language where it becomes – I don't want to say – Poetic, I think it does in places, but much more philosoph- but much more philosophical at times than I think poetic uh and 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 so you have to go through it carefully, and I have to tell you that that last section unknown to himself, I had to read that two or three times to mm-hmm. get even a beginning feeling that that I was digesting this okay, yeah, and I think uh it's it's what's interesting and it's mentioned in the the intro but also in the actual book that um what he was trying to do and and the ways his writing styles evolved or maybe the writing, what he was uh, wanting to do with this big project was actually channeling more Proust than he was channeling um Hemingway in terms of his syntax and the length of his sentences um and there is a point where Comrie uh, is talking to uh, Jessica, who is a young woman. Uh, they they are having a, a relationship, and he's taking her to Algeria to show her um, where he's from. Um, and <clears throat> they are discussing his project. And there is this uh, comment that um, remembers of things past or in search of lost time, because mm-hmm. a new title now. 
is for the rich and he wants to do uh, in search of lost time for the poor because he comes from a very poor background, but he wants to have the same approach to describing memory uh, and how uh, childhood memories impact the, your entire life. And um, in, the, in the comic itself, um, I really love the passages where Ferrandez is playing with timelines and flashbacks in a way that you can really only do, I think, in a comic where he's putting panels that have characters of different timelines that are in the same panel or shifting from one, uh, one panel to the next is two, two different time periods, um, but it's not indicated. You just figure it out visually that there is a, a shift and then you should be um, kind of connecting those moments um, in a kind of non-linear fashion. There's a, a passage where um, as a child he's crying and you see him as an adult remembering this and uh, but he's, in, he's on a boat on his way to Algeria and he's very hot and sweating and there's this connection between uh, the, the representation of the tears as a child to his sweat as an adult. Yeah. And uh, thought that was very well done. Um, and, you know, another, I think, visual way of bringing together the past and the present, you know, and I think mm -hmm. you, you gave an example of one, is in some panels we see different figures, uh, you know, especially Komori, uh, the protagonist. Mm -hmm. In the same panel, both as an adult, you know, the one who's actually remembering the past, mm -hmm. and as a young boy, the mm -hmm. subject of what he's remembering. And it's almost like there are two people there together, the way that they're drawn. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's very fluid. It doesn't, uh, as you read, it doesn't, um, you know, stop the flow of, of the, the narrative, which is pretty, I thought was very impressive in the way it is, it is handled. You know, there's and one. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, 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 there's something I wanted to ask you since yeah. we're talking mm -hmm. about the art. Now, one of the things that the woman who wrote the introduction, Alice Kaplan, states mm -hmm. at one point, it, she references this, you know, very brief two page chapter, the third one, Paris. And mm -hmm. she says that, and this is in the penultimate paragraph of her intro, she says, not everything is so serious, far from it. With a wink to his readers, Ferrandez imagines a cocktail party at Gallimard, where Jacques Camerie, the fictional writer, finds himself next to Jean-Paul Sartre, André Malraux, Gaston Gallimard, and Camus himself. Okay, so I turn now to those that two-page chapter, this is 26 and page 27, and this mm -hmm. is a cocktail party in Paris at Gallimard. Now, mm -hmm. I can easily make out Sartre, right? Because Sartre with that wondering eye, or what do you call mm -hmm. it, the, that, that eye that's off in the thick glasses, you know, <laughs> it's unmistakable, okay? Yeah. For the life of me, I cannot find at this party Albert Camus. Mm. And I've looked at all the visuals. And in many ways, he's kind of distinctive himself because he, you know, he would sweep his hair back mm -hmm. if you look at pictures of him. So I'm looking for a 
figure who's illustrated in the manner of having his hair swept back or combed back mm-hmm. uh, in that distinctive way. I can't find anyone. So does Kaplan know something that I don't? Is this an extremely hidden figure? Could you find the Camus illustration? Well, yeah, it's it's not exactly obvious, but I was thinking it might be um, on page 27, the last trip. There is um, the middle uh, panel. Oh, the guy with the bow tie? It's a, yes, it's a close-up of... of uh, yeah, so it's in the background. I, I think that might be him there. Okay, I, I wondered about that. I don't think so. One, the facial features do not look similar at all. And also, I have never in my life <laughs> seen a picture of Camus in a bow tie, except, may, I don't know, maybe he did wear one when he accepted the Nobel Prize. I'm not Possible. certain. But um, but why would, he, why would Camus be at a cocktail party with a bow tie. It just doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> Maybe it's not. I, Yeah, I had the same kind of thought. It's like, I'm not really sure where they find him, but... And, and maybe Kaplan's mistaken in something like a wild goose chase. It's possible. Um, the, the character with the little uh, scarf. Who's in the third panel on page 26? Mm-hmm. I believe that's... That's let's see. That's probably Gallimard, maybe. Hmm. I'm not Wh- sure. Gallimard, which- or I don't think it's Malraux, but um, yeah, I would have to look at it again. And this this other character with a mustache. I don't know who that could be, but yeah, it's not obvious that you know he's not standing out like uh, like Sartre is definitely. <laughs> Yeah. Well, again, he's, you know, very distinctive in terms of the way that he looks. Yeah. And I thought when I read it, I I was not looking at this scene as something extremely entertaining or funny, like it was presented in the in the foreword. Uh, I think the overall tone of the book is very deep and rather serious, sometimes sad. Mm hmm. I don't really see it as a monument of humor. <laughs> yeah, um, this may be one of those lighter moments that Kaplan references. Yeah, and he's a, being a little playful, but it's not extraordinary comic. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you're right about the general tone of this adaptation is that it is quite serious, rather somber. And mm-hmm. I, I, I was very moved by this. And again, I wish I yes. had read the original prose version of the first man. But mm-hmm. um, so I, I can't, I can't really get a feel for what Ferrandez and the translator Ryan Bloom have done with this, which was a different experience from reading Ferrandez's The Stranger because I was quite familiar with The Stranger, and I thought that Ferrandez's The Stranger was a fairly accurate and respectful adaptation of the original novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I don't, I, I'm assuming that uh, this is the same, but uh, not having read the first man, I'm not sure. But, but I think this was a fascinating book. Yeah, definitely. The major takeaway for me in, in terms of the story and the history of um the Franco-Algerian relationship is the way the book um, really highlights 
who the French, you know, who were the the people who, who went to Algeria to colonize the country, mm-hmm. which is something we don't really talk about a lot in France to identify these people and what were their motivations and where were they coming from. Uh, what was their experience in France before they actually got to Algeria? Uh, we kind of describe them, you know, we say, okay, so we have the colonial people, and then they're, you know, they they had um, the next generation, and then we got what we call Pied Noir, Black Feet, right? So the, the French uh, descendant of colonials that, you know, lived all their life in Algeria. But what I found fascinating in the book is the way he connects uh, very important events of French history with the colonization of Algeria. So we have this part where he's talking about how the uh, the first um, settlers in this area who built the farms and infrastructures were uh, basically in a situation very similar to people who um, you know the 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 people in the U.S. you know coming from Europe and and uh, <coughs> You know, going westward, it, it was very difficult. A lot of them died um, because of the the conditions. Uh, mm-hmm. And what was fascinating to me is that he's talking about those people being forty-eighters. I don't know if you remember this. Yeah, it's, uh, mentioned page ninety-eight, because which it was, is a eighteen forty-eight. Yep. Yes, the revolution of eighteen forty-eight. Uh, so there are people who <clears throat> uh, were fighting the um, basically the um, restoration they were because we the, the royal the sorry monarchy was back at that time and there was a like a second revolution uh, <clears throat> so that connects that kind of movement of people who felt oppressed in France that you know moved to Algeria for a better life um, and then start over and then the same thing happened with the next wave um, which would be Comiri's, uh, uh, I think, on, the, on his mother's side. He's talking about his grandmother, mm-hmm. um, who were from Spain, and then they move all the way to, to uh, eastern France in Alsace-Lorraine that was lost in 1870 because of the, ger- the first conflict with, the, with Germany, which is the precursor to World War I. Um, so these people were had to leave because this area of France became German and they ended up in Algeria. Um, and then he has this word, he says, this is the prosecuted become becoming prosecutors that basically they were oppressed and bullied because, um, you know, they were in the, their land was taken over by another country, basically. So they move to to Algeria and they started oppressing the local people. Um, so that cycle is very uh, was very interesting to me the way it is presented uh, because I feel like unfortunately there are a lot of gaps in this uh, narrative. Uh, French um, history books are very sketchy, um, and the way when I was in school. I never studied any of that. We never learned any of that. And uh, I, feel, I think it's that was very powerful to me. It's, it's kind of like the South's relationship with African-Americans, right? Uh, until yes. relatively <laughs> recently, you know, the, the true history of 
the South, especially what many people in the South still call the, you know, the war against no- Northern aggression was mm-hmm. rather watered down in history books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, of, of a resistance to confront the past. Uh, Correct. Way. And just imagining this story being told, you know, by Camus in uh, what we are, 1957. Mm-hmm. Is that right? 1915. Well, no, he died in... 60. 60. Uh-huh. Um, and I completely understand why this book was absolutely, it was impossible to publish at that time. Um, I would have been extremely um, controversial. And it's it just goes to show how um, his level of thinking about who he was and where he was from and his relationship between the two countries was so, so deep. Um, and uh, I, I, it's only you know in the nineties that we were able to kind of grasp what he, what he was uh, wanting to do. Now, now I'm I'm sorry they didn't get to finish this masterwork. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it yeah. may have impacted French culture in an amazing way. Mm-hmm. We will never know. Yeah. Now you know one of the things that you've been emphasizing is how Camus or Ferrandez, as in his adaptation especially, mm-hmm. is bringing to the fore Algerian culture, and especially mm-hmm. as it relates to France mm-hmm. or, or or the Blackfeet. Um, Pierre Noir. Yes, Pierre Noir. Mm-hmm. And another part of that we get in the chapter. And by the way, there are fourteen chapters, not thirteen. I was mistaken. Uh, but we get in the I think it's the fifth chapter: the father, his death, the war. And this is where Jacques goes and does some does a little research on his father who died in the Second World War. Uh, first World War. I'm sorry, first. the First World. Did I say Second? I, the First World War. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but we learn a little bit about, and I'm not sure how you pronounce it, uh, Zouave? Zouave. Les Zouave. Zouave, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, and these are Algerian soldiers who fought, and not just in the First World War, but in other wars, and they had – they were used in a unique way, many times as the first wave of a particular attack. But they also, yeah. yes, in many ways. Um, but they also had a quite unique way of dressing their uniform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were wearing uh, blue and red, and they were like moving targets, basically, for the Germans. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, they were sent to the slaughter, um, and. It's a very odd thing when you think about it because there were French people who moved to Algeria. They were local people. They were, you know, fighting for France and being basically used, um, sent to their death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a very powerful image um, uh, when they describe this story. You see a row of soldiers, and the closer they get to the front, they become. Uh, like Walking Dead <laughs> zombies, but uh, like skeletons. Mm-hmm. I forgot what page that is on, but uh, visually very um, telling of uh, of what they were. What the story is telling. Yeah, this is another um, dark chapter that is brought forward. Yeah. yeah, and then as I mentioned earlier, the book does end on quite not only a prosy but philosophical note, 
And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think if, at least from reading the adaptation, again, not having read the original book, if I didn't know that the this book was incomplete at the time of Kimu's death, the way that at least this adaptation ends, I wouldn't know that this is an incomplete book. Does that make sense? Yeah, I have the same feeling. Yeah, yeah it is. And uh, I don't know if it's the way the the actual prose version was uh, organized, so it, it has a, we feel that it is complete, or it is Ferrandez who made it uh, more of a complete work. But yeah, there's definitely so much. It's so rich mm-hmm. that if if you know, hundred and fifty pages of of his his work was that rich. Imagine if he had done thousands. It would have been quite a piece of, uh, I mean, quite a monument. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it, but yeah, I, I definitely don't feel that it's. Um, and I was not sometimes, you know, when you have uh, adapting, uh, sorry, adapting a literary work like this is is a challenge in terms of how much text you you put that is actually maybe from the book or very literary. It kind of slows down the pace of, um, you know, uh, in, in comic form. Sometimes it's 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 not very uh, pleasant to read. Actually, uh, you feel like it's what's the relationship between text and picture. But I don't, I, I, at no point in this book, I felt that way. I just felt it was denser to, but I still felt it worked um, as a, as an adaptation. I didn't feel it was too much. I thought it's, it's at the end. So it's kind of a conclusion. Um, so it didn't bother me when I was reading the book that we suddenly have all these texts. Mm. There was one thing I wanted to mention. It's a small detail, but I, I don't know if you, you know, we often talk about uh, narrator and voices and who is speaking and the relationship between uh, word balloons and, uh, you know, na- uh, blocks of text. Um, and there's a passage where I felt there was a kind of a, a strange shift. So when the characters... Uh, when we have speech balloons, he's creating dialogues between the characters, and then sometimes we have narration, right, mm-hmm. in the in the panels, um, and they are quite different because when characters talk, they, of course, they use their voices and they may be more informal, use slang or or something like this, um, or a way to speak that is uh, matches their character, whereas the blocks of narration are more literary, but. There is a small scene when um, the protagonist is in high school. So he's going to this, he got a scholarship um, thanks to his relationship with Monsieur Bernard, his, his uh, teacher, uh, elementary school teacher who kind of saw his talent and wanted to help him get a better education, convince his grandmother that he had to go to high school and not take an uh, apprenticeship. Um, which meant no money for the family for during the, the time he was he's going to be in high school. Um, so they are um, on the way to the high school, on the way to school. You remember that scene where they constantly uh, make fun of a, um, a man who is bald, is selling things in the street, oh, yeah. and they call him right flight uh, flights. So they call fly steak rink. Um, or mosquito velodrome, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because he has no hair. 
so like insects will use his, his head as a as a landing pad uh, so they do it regularly, and one day when they do that, the man doesn't react. Usually he screams at them. But he has two other um, boys that he paid uh, to come and beat them up. And they're actually two local – they are probably uh, Arab uh, kids. So they are beat, beating up those two uh, you know, for, uh, French kids who are making fun of, <laughs> of this of this man. So there is this scene where they, they are running around and then they hop on uh, a streetcar to escape and they are talking. And um, so uh, Jacques is talking to his friend and he says, uh, he paid them to attack us, you know, and, uh, and then they go, we'll get him back. We'll rans- ransack his store and break his face. Though so they're pretty upset. And then there is a caption that says, the next day we went on uh, our way. And the, then the two, you see the two characters talking and the, the, um, the speech balloon says, we chickened out, past tense, commenting on what's happening. So I was thrown off. I see what's happening. And then it goes on. After all, we were in the wrong. So one of the characters says that. And then uh, Jack's friend and Jack says, we were in the wrong and we were afraid of being beaten up. And then we move to present day. We see him as an adult. He continues saying this later. This is on page 145. Hmm? Yeah, page 145. Yeah, mm-hmm. sorry. Yeah, 145. And then he, he continues and says later, I made myself consider all of this again when I truly come to understand that men pretend to do what's right, but bow only in the face of force. And this is a strong point he's making about kind of his view and philosophy. But there, I, I was thrown off by this sequence in terms of uh, the the narrative voice. Did you have the same? For this particular passage? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, that last panel where the present day Jacques says, later I made myself consider you know, this again? Well, what happened before? Because you see the past Jack, right, mm-hmm. speaking as if he's the narrator of his own story in the simple past – and commenting on it, right? Why would they still sit, you know, be standing in the street looking at um, that bold person and say, we chickened out? They wouldn't say that, right? That's not dialogue. It's comment. That's a good point. You know, I don't know if I felt the same way when I read this originally, but it does make sense now that you say this. I mean, would these two young boys be admitting that they chickened out and turn almost philosophical, you Uh know, it says, you know, we were wrong, or or, or at least feel some kind of shame and admit it one to the other. They may feel it, but would they speak about it? Yes, exactly. So I feel like the voice of present day uh, Jacques is just present here in the speech balloons and i was wondering why at this particular time this is happening maybe maybe to make us pay attention to his point that's kind of an interesting little moment for me when i was reading so it's just to show there's i think there's a lot of um, passages like this that are kind of subtle in what fernandez is, is doing that's uh, makes that book i think very interesting and complex So actually, two 
really interesting and in their own ways kind of complex books that we looked at on this, mm-hmm. our late November episode. We started off with Edmond Baldwin's Piero, which came out in early November from New York Review Comics. And then after that, we looked at an adaptation of The First Man by Jacques Ferrandez. And this came out in October from Pegasus Books. Yes. And two books that when we chose them, we didn't know that they would have so much in common. But then we read them and came to find out, wow, they work really well together. Yes, it's a great combo, maybe for Christmas, by both of them. Exactly. It's like the peanut butter and chocolate of comics <laughs> translations. Definitely. And High quality books. That's right. And as we pointed out at the top of the show, you can find great deals on books from both of these publishers, New York Review Comics and Pegasus Books, by going to the website of our sponsor, which is Discount Comic Book Service. Remember, go to dcbservice.com, and there you will find every single month mind-blowing specials. That's dcbservice.com. And after you do get your books there, get in touch with us and let us know what you're going to be reading. If you go to our website, comicsalternative.com, you'll find that you can leave us a voice message online via SpeakPipe. Or you can call us the old-fashioned way. Pick up that phone and dial 4153-COMICS. That's 415-326-6427. And if you want to get a hold of us by email... I am Pascal at ComicsAlternative.com. And you can also email me at Derek at ComicsAlternative.com or the show in general at TwoGuys at ComicsAlternative.com. We're also on social media. You can find us and communicate with us via Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram, Google+, Goodreads, Pinterest, YouTube, Slack, and Discord. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts. You can stream us on Stitcher. You can also find us on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, on TuneIn, and on iHeartRadio. But you can find every single one of our podcast episodes, as well as the reviews and comics-related commentary that we post on our blog, simply by going to our website, comicsalternative.com. And we do like to hear from you. We do. That's right. So please, please write. That's right. And remember, we will be back later this month with our official December Eurocomic show. Until then, I'm Derek. I'm Pascal. Take care. Au revoir.